the Recovery Revolution will be podcast on the Since Right Now Addiction Recovery Network. This is the Unruffle Podcast, episode 141. This is a podcast about recovery through creativity. We live an intentional life. We thrive. I am Sandra Primo. And I'm Tammy Salas. And we are The Unruffled. Hello, Unruffled listeners. We are popping in at the top of the show to share with you several ways that you can help support the podcast. First, you can become a patron of the show by donating to our Patreon fundraising campaign. Please consider supporting our consistent effort in bringing you weekly content on creativity and recovery, all for less than the price of a latte. For just a dollar an episode, you will receive early access to each week's show as our way of saying thank you. If every listener did this, we would be over the moon. The link to our Patreon campaign is www.patreon.com backslash the unruffled podcast. And that's not it. You can share our show on social media or with your friends, and you can subscribe to the podcast and give us a rating on iTunes. All of this helps our little show immensely. And we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Now onto the show. Hey, Sandra. Good morning. How are you, my friend? I'm all right. Where am I talking to you from? Settling into a new normal. (laughs) We are cozy and, and, and squeezed into our rental. Finally, it finally happened. How does that feel? Sick of hearing my own voice. (laughs) Here we are. We have arrived. Uh, It's um, it's it's okay. Uh, I have a lot to say about it that I won't say this morning. In fact, (laughs) I um, I am releasing a newsletter all about it today, as as we're recording this, not as this is aired, but. Um, as this airs, if you haven't read it, then, you know, go back and open it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's a lot of like, where are the light switches? Where's, you know, when you walk into the bathroom every time I go to the left to turn on the light and it's on the right, you know, that things like that, like, where's the cat? She's, you know, she's been kind of freaked out since we moved. And so we're always, we're, trying to always like locate the cat. Okay. She's under this, bed. she's <laughs> hiding in this corner. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of that. Um, there's a lot of other interesting things happening though, as well, um, that I did not anticipate. Um, you know, my studio, uh, I'd already, you know, kind of mentally prepared myself for the fact that I was not going to be near my studio anymore. Yeah. Normally it's in my backyard. Now it's about three miles away. Um, I was mentally trying to just, you know, pre adjust to that. Um, but now I have found that, um, I have no electricity out there. (laughs) Oh, shoot. And though I had talked to the contractor, you know, several times about that the fact that I needed electricity out there. Yeah. Um, so I don't really know how that will resolve. Um, yeah. So, 
Okay. Hopefully it will though. Cause I know you need that. Right. Space. I, yep. I hope that it does, but, um, I'm already trying to, you know, come up with solutions because not everything works out according to our expectations. <laughs> now do they? Nope. <laughs> not. So, it does not. Yeah. Oh, well, I hope that happens for you, Sandra. Cause I know, yeah, that's your space and your sanctuary. It's where you sew and yeah. Okay. Yeah. I hope that works out. Yeah, but you're able so, to record at your house, obviously. Oh yeah, yeah, doing. yeah, yeah, yeah. We're at my rental, so yeah, my sound might be different for the next couple of months, but this is it. Yeah. <laughs> this is the space. Yeah. This no, is you the sound good. Recording space, and um, I am in my kitchen slash uh, living room, and it's all kind of one big space. Mm-hmm. It's efficient. <laughs> New normal. For how long are you guesstimating? Uh, probably until August. Okay. Yeah. So right. you're digging in. New year, yep. new space. <laughs> yeah. It's You'll have some while. lessons unfold for yourself. <laughs> oh, there will be so many. <laughs> are the kids adapting okay? The kids have have just really, uh, uh, yeah, they've completely adapted and embraced their new rooms. They have they have decorated their rooms already. That's Aww. actually just been a joy to watch. And Max has been them. cool with it, your oldest? Yeah, <sighs> which is interesting. I thought because he's the one who had kind of dug his heels in and who was like, I ain't moving nothing until it's time, you know, <laughs> like he wasn't going to move anything. Right. And as a matter of fact, he was like even contemplating, could I stay here and just let you go? <laughs> you know, Can like you guys just throw me some food every day? The kid <laughs> doesn't like, he does not like, he does not appreciate change. But once he got into his room and realized, oh, like he could really like display his personality mm-hmm. through his, his decorating choices and designing choices. He was all over it. I was, oh, I love it. Yeah. Oh, that's so. good. I'm glad, Sandra. Because yeah, yeah, to move is a huge stressful thing, but to have your kids not be happy with the move and be in a mood on top of it. Like, I'm so glad that, I mean, they're, they're kids, so they're going to have moods, but just that I'm glad for you. Yeah. 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 Me too. He's, that's been a big surprise. Now, my daughter, she's like enthusiastic for everything. I mean, we could have been (laughs) moving into a bomb shelter and she would have just been (laughs) cool. Let's put up, you know, twinkle lights. lights. Makes a a space always pretty. I need you some twinkle lights. Oh, Chloe, I love her. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, good. Well, you sound good, and I'm sure that feels good to have it done. Uh, Right. right. That was the monkey on our backs for sure. Plus, we were just living in chaos, you know? We really were. Yeah. And so it's, yeah. Anyway. Good. All done. I'm glad. Well, my... um my life this week has just been all about wrapping up school and gosh, Mm. it's bittersweet. You know, I'm happy to wrap it up, Sandra, but you know, it's all the final projects, final papers, final research, final everything, final reflections on the classes that are due. Like, oh, I'm going to be really happy. I think it's the 19th that I'm done with my last critique in my art class. And yeah, I'm going to be happy to be done. I've been doing a report on the Aleutian Islands in Alaska. Hmm. And 
I didn't know. Did you know? I'm going to tell you some facts here that um, <laughs> 47,000 earthquakes have happened in Alaska in the Aleutian Island or in Alaska this year alone. Wow. I don't know how I many California has. I have to look that up, but that's a lot of freaking earthquakes. There's a ton of them and volcanoes. Mm. And so that's, I'm doing a report on that, which always has me think about recovery, the metaphors. And the, you know, there's, there's these two plates that collide and then they cause a tsunami and then they, you know, and I'm just thinking about emotions, feelings, recovery. And um, that's what I do with all my school classes. Somehow I relate it in my mind so that it can keep me interested because <laughs> mm. otherwise it's a little bit um, dry, a little mm -hmm. bit dry for me. So I met with my professor, my geology professor, and I was like, yeah, I'm 49 years old and I've, I've never written a scientific research paper, so I'm going to need some help. And I was mm -hmm. like, I'm glad I know how to ask for help. <laughs> and he was like, you, you basically are just going to source everything. I don't expect right. you to make this stuff up. It's all your, so I said, so basically I'm copying and pasting from all these places. And he's like, yeah. And your reference yes. page is going to be the hardest thing you do. It is hard. <laughs> oh God. Yes. Oh, it is hard. I'm going to write one of those. Yep. So I worked on it for like nine hours on Saturday, which it's due this Friday, Sandra. So I'm perhaps have left it to the end, but not the bitter end, um, which is a, a progress for me. Mm, and yeah. so today I'm just cleaning up references and going to read it once more to make sure everything is in the right font or whatever, but then I'll be done two days ahead of time. That is absolutely not <laughs> last minute in my book. <laughs> Thank you. Thank it's you. That's what I needed. That. I needed that validation. Absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, I pulled so many all-nighters in college. Yeah. Well, I think I've learned over these last four and a half years in college. Like I've done that. Um, it never feels good, but sometimes it's just necessary, you know, and we're not going away for the holidays and we're not um, having a bunch of family over like, so we're not, there's no holidays going on here. There's no tree up yet. Maybe there will be, I don't know, but um, yeah, I have time to work on it and I'm doing a painting project that I'm interested in for painting. So it makes it, makes it all right, but it's, um, it's time to be done. So I can't wait. Mm, very um, exciting. But really quickly before we do the intro, I want to talk about, we had a really exciting call yesterday. We did. We had a super exciting call. You tell, you tell the listeners because I'm excited. Okay. Well, so we've alluded to it several times, maybe, have we? I think we have. Yeah. Um, but we are planning a European unruffled retreat. And it is so exciting because yeah. um, it's uh, it's ha it's going to happen. It's happening. It's, it's happening. It's a reality. Uh, we finally um, settled on a well. We think we've settled on a place. If not, mm -hmm. we have some backup options. Yeah. We um, yeah. It's it's coming together with the help of our friend Cody, who is um, God came with. A beautiful presentation this week. I was very impressed that, by his presentation. That man can make a PowerPoint. <laughs> I told him, so I told him, I'm like, that would have taken me 72 years to make that PowerPoint presentation. Just so, and that's like on the conservative side. Beautiful. I love me a PowerPoint presentation that somebody else makes. Yeah. Oh, that no, I that's not even in my wheelhouse. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, Cody's helping us. Cody is, was has been on the show before, uh, and I met him in Paris. Sandra's worked with him 
um, through her Change Your Story uh, program. And he is a marketing whiz and he is helping us nail down all of the details and helping us develop kind of um, a voice and a theme for it too. I was working on a little word map for it. Um, but we're going to have all the details in January. I think we're going to dedicate a whole show to it, right? In early January. Yes, we are. Yeah. We and are. it's going to be for, I think we're going to have room for anywhere from what, 10 to 12 people, 10 mm-hmm. to 13 people. I think we'll have to plus cap us. it off at 12, I yeah. think. Right. So it'll be intimate. Cap it off at 12. And we're basically going to vacation together and have no alcohol in the mix and eat and do workshops and make art and relax and journal and, you know, nothing crazy, just awesome, relaxing things that you can opt in or opt out of and Mm -hmm. beautiful location. Don't have to think about food for the most part. There'll be a couple Mm -hmm. free days where the people can do what they want um, or free meals, a couple, you know, like a couple of them, but it's going to be pretty special. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And I can't wait. I can't yes. Wait. I'm just like bursting. Wait. I want to like, I know, it all, but I we're know. not prepared. Cody but, yeah, was like, you only ready. have one chance to like launch it, <laughs> you know, and make it beautiful. Like you only get that, that first time you release it. So he's helping us with all of that. And yeah. I'm, I'm really so, grateful yeah, for his we're going to be, we're going to be super ready when, uh, you know, when we have it all together, but be on the lookout. Yeah. It's going to be in the late fall though. So we should let people know that if you're thinking about trips for next year or big workshops, you're going to take, I mean, we're going to Europe, so it's not going to be $500. It's going to, it's going to cost to go to Europe, right? I mean, in homes and transportation and meals, but it's, we think it's going to be a great value for what you're going to get. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, And so last week of September, beginning of October is kind of where we're looking to nail down and we're nailing down those details um, in the coming weeks. So that's right. I get to go to Europe with you, Sandra. Super exciting. I mean, did you ever think like, when, we, when, no. when I was, you know, initially stalking you um, in the home group and <laughs> that we would be doing this? No. Yeah. No. And if this goes well, I can see us doing many more. Yes. Yes. This is our, right. That's the plan. We want mm-hmm. it to go as well as it can possibly go. And we'll, you know, learn from the oopses and because we want it, we want it to be a thing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's our big dream in 2020. So I wanted to, well, we're going to talk about some of that stuff at the beginning of the year in an episode too. I'm just, I can't wait. I can't wait. Yeah. So we should get to introducing our wonderful guest. Yes. Let's today on the podcast, we are continuing with our series of, uh, women, creative, sober women from our unruffled community. And today we have Jane Coburn. And Jane lives in the beautiful North Carolina mountains with her husband of almost 28 years. They have two young adult sons who are on the autism spectrum. And though, and through hard work, courage, and lots of support are pursuing their own unique paths into adulthood. Jane graduated from the University University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill with a master's degree in rehabilitation counseling. And for 30 years, she has worked with individuals who are neurodiverse and their families providing counseling and resource support. Yeah, and she is also a certified gray area drinker coach. In 2019, Jane developed her own life coaching and consulting company. 
Jane is an avid hiker, a reader, a writer, and a joy seeker. And if you want to check out her work, um, you can visit her website at janecoburn.life. Her Facebook page is the same, janecoburn.life, and so is her Instagram, at janecoburn.life. And we loved our conversation with Jane, and we hope you do too. Yes, you guys enjoy Jane. Welcome to the show, Jane. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Where are you talking to us from, Jane? So I live in a tiny little town in North Carolina called mm. Cullowee. And it's in the mountains. Mm, sounds lovely. I bet it's beautiful. Do you have beautiful uh, vistas? We do. We do. I'm actually looking out at the mountains as I'm speaking to you. And it's absolutely beautiful. Saves me every day. I have a porch that I sit on and write and journal and look out at the mountains. And it's just, it's awesome. Hmm. I just saw a play at my son's school Friday night um, that was played, was set in North Carolina. Um, Bright Star by Edie Brickell oh. and Steve Martin. And was, oh, wow. Yeah, yes. it was a great... About the trains. Yeah, um, about yeah. A, a mom and a writer. And there was a train in there, yes. Um, uh-huh. But the music from it was so beautiful. And so I've had, I've had North Carolina on my mind all weekend. So, well, we're glad you're here. Thank you so much for talking to us. You are one of our unruffled... Uh, secret Facebook, um, not so secret now, I guess, um, <laughs> listeners. And that's what part of the series is, is that we've, we asked some listeners to come on the show and you sent us um, and answered some questions that we asked. And so we're happy to have you. I'm so excited to be here. I love the Unruffled group and I love your podcast. So thank you for having me. Oh, yeah. Um, so let's just jump in. Like when, when um, well, I know you have a story behind this. So why don't you share with our listeners um, you know, your sobriety date. I know there's a story with that and we'll go from there. We'll just jump in. Okay. Um, well, I have what I consider two sobriety dates. My first sobriety date is June 17th, 2010. And, uh, I guess I'll go back. I guess I'll go back to the beginning. My second sobriety date is May 27th, 2017. So I stopped drinking in 2010, didn't drink for almost seven years. And then I went back and had some drinks in the spring of 2017. And I didn't get drunk or hungover or anything major. Uh, But after I had those few occasions of drinking in that spring, I decided that's it. I'm done. And so um, I like to tell people my story because lots of times people, after seven years, people are surprised that I would go back to drink. And I think that that had a lot lot to do with shame. I had a lot of shame around my drinking, and then I had a lot of shame around not being able to drink. Mm, And so I kind of put myself, yeah. Yeah. So I put myself in a no-win situation. Right, right. You, there wasn't any positive um, feelings for either either choice right, <laughs> associated right. with either choice. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> did you stop drinking from with like sheer will the first time around, or how did you stop? Uh, well, so I started drinking, the first time I drank was when I was, I think I was about 14. I was a freshman in high school and my parents went away for the weekend and my older sister was watching us. 
and she had a part-time job and she was there. So my friend and I, I don't understand, I don't remember why we decided this, but my friend and I decided we were going to go in her father's liquor cabinet, steal something, and then go to my house where no one was and drink it. And we took Harvey's Bristol Cream. I don't know if you remember oh, I, that. That's like an old thing. <laughs> Barb, I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't even know what it is. I, is it sherry? I don't even know what that is. But we took, that's what we grabbed. Oh. Youth, does, youth does not discriminate. Youth does not yeah. care. <laughs> <laughs> and we mixed it with Coke. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> because I don't know, I guess somewhere in our, you know, where we had heard about rum and Cokes, maybe. I don't, right. we, were so, we didn't know what we were doing, you know. Everything's good with Coke. Yeah. 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 Oh, like, we'll just sweeten everything up. Just sweeten it up. <laughs> Like Laverne, like Laverne did on Laverne and Shirley. You were just making exactly. it real. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. So, uh, so we drank that. And the funny thing is, is when I think about that, it, first of all, it was disgusting. I mean, it was like forcing down the most disgusting, disgusting thing you could ever taste. And I think back and I think what, you know, if I ate anything that tasted gross, would I take another bite? No, right. but you know, alcohol, they say cunning, baffling, and powerful, you know? So I, you know, something clicked in me and I kept drinking that. And, uh, I got, I got drunk and I got really, really sick. And to the point that my friend got scared and called my sister at her job. And my sister called her best friend who came down then to take, to help me. Um, and then after that, in high school, it wasn't like off to the races after that. I, I did drink at parties sometimes and things like that, but I didn't, it didn't become a problem or anything really out of the ordinary. Uh, but I think when I went away to college, it was off to the races. Starting on the second night of college, I believe that I started to equate alcohol with fun because every time from day two on that I went out with friends, it was around frat parties or tailgating at football games or, you know, something with alcohol. And so I think that I kind of, you know, in childhood, we have so much fun and don't alter our state, you know, and then I get to college and every time I'm out, I'm drinking, not necessarily getting drunk every time, but often getting drunk. Mm-hmm. And so I just feel like that just began my whole party girl, social life, you drink when you go out kind of mentality. Right. There was and, only one definition presented of fun. Right. Exactly. At, in college. Yeah. Same for me. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, yeah. I don't think everyone maybe has that experience, but I, yeah, I experienced the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I live, we, we live near college and I deal with college students all the time and so many of them are involved in so many really cool things. And I'm like, I studied and I partied. That was college for me. Mm-hmm. And that's also when I did the whole work hard, play hard mentality kicked in because I didn't realize that at the time, but I had a lot of anxiety that I was kind of masking and didn't realize. And I had a lot of um, worry around what people thought of me. I was a perfectionist, people pleaser. So 
I wasn't going to not do well in school and I wasn't going to impress my, you know, I had to impress my parents, my professors, everything. So I would work hard all week and then Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, I'd go out and party. You're an Enneagram two. Two. (laughs) I understand you. Yes, I'm a classic two. I mean, I read the two and it was like, uh Mm -hmm. uh-huh. And so I thought that I was really extroverted and I thought that I was, uh, you know, the party girl center of attention. I'm always really loud and, and outgoing, but it wasn't until I took out the alcohol and started doing social things that I realized, oh, I'm lubing something a little bit here. You know, we would do like, I called them shower beers. We would have a beer while we were getting ready in the shower mm-hmm. before going out to a party. And it was just like this fun thing to do. And I thought everybody did that. And then you talk to people and they're like, shower beer I've never done yeah that's new you gave me a new one there Jane (laughs) (laughs) so yeah we called it preloading but yeah (laughs) yeah yeah preloading yeah Yeah. I call it just secret (laughs) just a secret for me I didn't know anybody else did it so yeah Sounds like you and I would have been good friends in college. Oh, heck yeah. We would have. Yeah. (laughs) Trouble. Capital T. (laughs) But the funny thing is, I never thought any of this was abnormal. The people around me were were drinking to excess on the weekends in college. My friends, we'd all wake up and laugh about our hangovers. We'd all be like, oh, let's go get greasy food. We're hungover. Nothing was abnormal. You know, I never was concerned about it or questioned it at all at that point in my life. It was, right. it was all just part of what was going on. And I wonder if it's just like attracts like, you know, that's, that's just kind of, uh, you mm-hmm. attract the people and you're attracted to people that you have similar, you know, you share similar interests and, and if that's partying, then that's what it, you know, or work hard, play hard. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, can you take us to around the first time you quit, like what that looked like and Sure. That first sobriety date. Sure. So, um, so I, when we got married pretty young, I met my husband right out of college and we got married. Um, I was almost 24 when we got married and he was in graduate school and he went to graduate school. And then right after his, he graduated, I went to graduate school. So it kind of extended this college atmosphere for us, even though Uh, graduate school was harder and you had to work, you know, more seriously. We still were on a college campus for four more years and still kind of in this uh, drinking on the weekends, early 20s to mid 20s kind of thing. And my husband, like most people, started to slow down, you know, what wasn't drinking as much. And I kept kind of binge drinking the way I had in college. And one night I went to a uh, an event that they were giving out awards to the people in graduate school for my husband. And I got really, really drunk. And I woke up the next morning on um, the couch and we had only been married for, I don't know, at that point, a year and a half. And I had never been put on the couch you know, I'd always been, even when I was trying, you know, I always was able, allowed to go to bed, you know, went to bed, not allowed, but you know what I mean? I always just yeah. went to bed on a drinking night and something happened and he had put me to bed on the couch with a blanket and a 
garbage can in case I got sick. And I woke up and that freaked me out. And I was so upset. I didn't remember a lot of the night before. Uh, I couldn't believe that I was on the couch and not in bed with him. And it just really rattled me. And so I looked up in the phone book, AA, because back then it was the only, you know, this was back in the 90s. So I didn't know what else to do, you know. So I called the hotline and this wonderful woman answered and we talked and she sent me to a meeting that night and I was 26 and I walked in and they did what I now know is a first step meeting for me because I was mm -hmm. new. Right. And so a first step meeting is when a new person comes, they kind of tell their stories of what brought them to AA and everyone told really, really hard bottom stories, you know, um, about rehab and jail and DUIs and losing everything and all these things that I was 26 and in graduate school. And, you, you just know, didn't I, was, relate. I, I just couldn't relate at all. And it scared me. And so what it did was I said, oh, I'm not, I'm not these people. And to this day, if I go to an AA meeting and someone is there new and people are doing a first step, I always speak to a high bottom and I speak to my, my experience because I just don't know if that person is like me at 26 and is going to run out of the room not relating. So I always speak up in those meetings and tell my high bottom story. Yeah, so I try that, to do that too, Jane. That's yeah, yeah. So that if they relate to that, they won't you know, run out like I did. So I left there, I went home, I said to my husband, I'm just not gonna drink as much as, as I've been you know, drinking, I'm not gonna binge, and I am not an alcoholic and I do not belong in AA. And for the next 17 years, I basically moderated my drinking. Um, I had two children, I didn't drink the whole time I was pregnant with them, and you know, afterwards, um, when they were little, I really didn't drink that much. I had an occasional night, weekend out when we would get a babysitter and then I would, you know, binge and off to the races with that. Um, but I was able to moderate for 17 years. And what would happen was I would not drink at all for long periods, or I would have a glass of wine out to dinner on a Friday night and be fine, you know, not have another glass or maybe have two and not have another glass. And then eventually there'd be some night where I went out and I lost control and I would drink and I would often black out which is also something I thought everyone did. Mm -hmm. Same. Um, Same. Yeah. yeah. Now, I have a question, though. When you were, mm -hmm. like, moderating, you know, mm -hmm. your version of moderating, mm -hmm. were, you, uh, were you obsessive about it? Like, did you obsess over what you weren't drinking, how much you were drinking? I mean, did it rent a lot of space in your, in your brain? Not initially, and not during times of, like, um, not initially, but as – as the years went on, it got harder and harder and took up more and more energy and space. And I think right. that's what people don't realize. It's progressive. Who, yes. And also that people don't realize the energy that people are putting into moderation. Mm -hmm. Like my husband. Yeah. And I'll talk to my husband about it and he'll just be like, what? You know, people who don't have an issue with alcohol, they just don't get it. They don't think and about the fact, right. They don't. Yeah, it's not something that they're having to really control. Right, right. And so in my mind, I was like, well, I'm not drinking. I'm not drinking. Heck, I mean, I'm not drinking every day. I'm not even drinking every week. Sometimes not even every month, you know, like, and so I don't have a problem. 
But then if we had a night out, it would be like, it would start, okay. I'm only gonna have two, you know, two glasses of wine. I'm only gonna do this. I'm only gonna drink on Saturdays. I'm only gonna, you know, and it, it's all this thinking and trying to control it. And people who don't have a problem don't do that. Nope, they nope, don't. They do and, not. <laughs> um, I remember, so it just got kind of progressively worse. And, um, but I always would prove to myself that I didn't have a problem with alcohol by not drinking. I could always rein it in. I never um, became physically addicted to alcohol. I never drank consistently enough to, to become physically addicted. Um, and so if I didn't want to drink, I, I didn't have to drink. Um, so I could always convince myself that I didn't have a problem. Right. Now, was um, there an incident that brought you to your first, the first time you when it stuck, decided right. to quit? Yeah. Right. So, so starting a, about a year before the first time I really quit and it stuck, it just started to get to be where I noticed that I was starting to drink more as a self-medication, as an anxiety reducer. Uh, I have two boys that are on the autism spectrum and I have, my older son has seizures. Mm. And I really wanted to talk about that a little bit because I think it's something that people don't talk about. That um, we talk a lot about mommies who drink and moms in sobriety and how parenting, you know, there are all these memes, like you have to have wine to be a mother and, you know, all this stuff. And we talk about motherhood, but then we don't talk about the subset of mothers who have children with special needs and how isolating that can feel. Mm-hmm. And for someone like me, who is um, a recovering perfectionist and a two on the Enneagram and a people pleaser, it was really, really hard to have children that didn't, you know, were square pegs trying to pound them into round holes, you know, yes. and boy, did I try and pound them into those round holes early on, you know, mm-hmm. because I wanted them to be a certain way, look a certain way. I didn't want people, you know, I, I was worried about what people thought about them, about what people thought about me. Um, and, you know, you can't fix, you can't control that and you can't fix that. No, you can't. And we talked about it a little bit with Jen Geigley, who was um, on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. She also mm-hmm. has a son on the autism spectrum, but you're right. I think it's, um, we, you know, you would think that because there's a bit of extra work to do, we would want to be clear and present for that. And it's, mm-hmm. it has nothing to do with, um, you know, being a good, a good quote unquote, good mother or not. Mm-hmm. Um, it is trying to cope with all that anxiety that comes with parenting a child with special needs. And you know, I often think too, when I think back to my own experience, if I had had more support, you know, if I had asked for it, if I knew what to even exactly. ask for, mm-hmm. I wonder if I had, would have coped better. Um, I'll tell you a quick story in regards to that. Yes. Trying to, you know, hammer your, you know, square child into a round hole. My son was probably four and we were on a beach 
And I was constantly doing that. Don't do this. Don't do that. Uh You know, and, and, and constantly aware of, you know, how I was looked at as a, as a mother. And, um, and my son had a horrible speech impediment too. And, and I was for a long time, I was the only adult who could understand what he was even saying. And he looked at me and he said, mom, I am not your puppet. <laughs> Just as clear as wow. you can possibly say it. <laughs> wow. And that was kind of a turning point for me. I can't say that I completely, you know, changed the way, changed my motivations entirely, but it did make, it did shift my perspective a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's profound. Right. I know. I mean, good for him. You know, I mean, that's my whole, so much of my prayer for both my kids is that they will advocate for themselves, learn to advocate for themselves, you know, and that's what he was doing. That's Mm -hmm. that's, wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that one of the biggest gifts of my sobriety has been acceptance and releasing control, you know, realizing that the only thing I can control is my reaction to things and comparing my children to themselves instead of to other kids. Right. And the two of them are now young adults. They're 23 and almost 21 and they are just rocking their own lives and rocking their own path. And I am just so proud of them. That's wonderful. You know, and neither one of them care what anyone else thinks. And they are such good models for me, you know, Mm -hmm. and um, that is the, that is a gift of (laughs) the autism spectrum. It is, it is. They just do their own thing. And I'm just like, (laughs) go, you know, especially because when they were younger, I was trying to keep them in boxes that society would accept, you know, and meanwhile, it was me that wasn't accepting, you know, Mm -hmm. and so, um, But anyway, so in 2010, it just ramped up a little bit. I was doing things around my drinking that I never thought I would do. It it, it was becoming, it was turning from binge, you know, just binging every once in a while to um, drinking in the evening, you know, to kind of escape, you know, relax and escape the anxiety. And I found this book in Barnes and Noble by Caroline Knapp called Drinking a Love Story. And I was drawn to it. This is before podcasts, before all the other quit lit, you know, before anything out there. And I picked up this book and I read it like the Bible for six months. I mean, I would just read it and reread it. I couldn't completely relate. Like that first AA meeting I went to, I couldn't completely relate to her story, but there were pieces of it. But the biggest piece that I related to was she said, people who don't have a problem with alcohol don't lay in bed in the middle of the night worrying if they have a drink, you know, a problem with alcohol. Mm-hmm. Right. And ding, ding, ding. Yep. Yes. And I would lay awake at night and worry about my problem with alcohol, you know, especially those nights that I would drink too much, you know, blackout. I'd wake up at three in the morning, sweating profusely, mm-hmm. my heart racing, thinking, what did I say? What did I do? How did I embarrass my husband? you know, frantically trying to remember the night and things that I did and things that I said. And when I read that in her book, I just thought, oh, other people aren't doing this (laughs) if Mm -hmm. they don't have a problem with alcohol. Right. And And that's the point of relation right there. It's like our circumstances may all look completely different, but Mm -hmm. feelings are the same. Right. Right. And so 
that's why I don't like to talk about labels anymore or label people, you know, get too focused on what I label myself or what other people label themselves. Because really all that matters is how you feel about your alcohol use. Yeah. If it yep. is not serving you, if in your gut you think it's a problem, then it's a problem. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks, what label you put on it. If you have a problem and you know it, then then that's then listen to yourself, you know? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um I didn't really drink that much that whole spring and I read that book over and over. And I thought I was doing really well. And then my 25th high school reunion came up. Talk about anxiety, you know? Yeah. So, <laughs> so I went to the high school reunion and I had all kinds of friends that we met up and I had a hotel room with two girlfriends. It wasn't like I was walking in there by myself, you know, and hadn't talked to anybody. I had a whole gang and, you know, and, um, but I drank a lot, a lot. Um, and I blacked out. And we stayed in the hotel and I, you know, got to bed safely with my girlfriends and nothing horrendous happened. But the next morning, uh, when I got home to my parents' house, my sons had come with me to New Jersey and my husband was on a business trip. So it was just the three of us. And I came back to my parents' house that morning and my friend called me and she started telling me a story from the night before and laughing about it. And I said, oh, I must've been in the bathroom. I missed that. She said, I don't think you missed that. You were right there. So she sends me a picture and I'm literally standing next to the person who's giving the speech that she was referencing. Mm. I don't remember. I did not have one. I didn't recollect that at all. And that really scared me. And I had promised the boys that I would take them to see one of the Shreks in IMAX. So we, I, I was so hungover. I mean, I would get so hungover. I don't know how looking back, it's just like, if you drink that much and you're that sick every time you, when you've gone out and drank, what are you, why are you drinking it? It's just crazy. You know, alcohol is just, yeah. it's crazy. So I was so hungover, but I pro had promised them. So I took them to this movie and I remember just sitting in the movie crying mm. and just mm. thinking to myself, this is who I am. This is who I am. I'm a good mother. You know, I'm you sitting are. here because I promised them that, that I would go to this movie and I'm sick as a dog, but I'm here and they love me and they're so happy. And I'm a good person. I'm a good mother. I'm a good person. I'm a good mother. I just, I remember just crying in the dark in the movie theater, mm -hmm. thinking that over and over because, um, I didn't want to be the person I had been the night before. Mm. And, um, so then I went, I decided again, in 2010, there wasn't really anything out there. So I decided, all right, I'm going to go back to AA. And this time they did a first step meeting. It was all men again, mostly men again, mostly all of them older than me again, even though I was now 43. And they all had horrible bottoms. So I still couldn't relate. But this time I heard between the lines. I heard the shame. I heard the... Um, you know, wanting not to drink and then drinking anyway. I heard the remorse. Um, and so I found the things that were in common and I stayed and I stayed in AA for two years and I got a sponsor and I worked the steps. Um, 
I feel like everyone in the world should work tw a 12-step program. Okay. What a world <laughs> um, it would be. <laughs> and what a world it would be. That's what I, I say all the time. Yeah, I have friends that say <laughs> that, like, uh, everybody needs a program or <laughs> that person, right. that person right. needs a program. <laughs> I mean, and the biggest thing it did for me was I got honest with myself about a lot of stuff. Yeah. A lot of things that I was not addressing, a lot of things that I would drink about that I didn't know I was drinking about. Um, I found meditation. I found yoga. I started paying attention to my body more, which I had been completely disconnected from my body. I'd been all up in my head. Yeah. Um, I learned what my body felt like when I was feeling anxious, and I learned how to notice that and then shift that on my own, you know, how to uh, regulate my own nervous system so that then I was calmer and didn't have to grab a glass of wine. Um, and um, I stayed, I did not drink for seven years. I stopped going to AA a few years in, um, but I kept up with a lot of the tools that I picked up there and kept in touch with some friends from from the rooms um and the so, one thing oh go ahead no no, no go ahead oh, okay but and I, I got breast cancer uh three years into sobriety mm. and um that was like a whole other um layer of learning about how i wanted to live in the world and how I wanted to be present for every more moment because you don't know what's going to happen in the next moment. Yeah. And it taught me to look for joy instead of wallowing in what was wrong. Um, because life is, my whole thing is life is hard. Find the joy. You know, life is hard. I got a lot going on that's hard in my life. Uh, and I think I'm one of the most joyful people in the world. Every day I look for the joy in little things and big things. Um, I laugh every day. And uh, that was one of the big lessons from when I had breast cancer. And I stayed sober all through breast cancer. I just think, oh my gosh, if I was still binge drinking when I had breast cancer, I can't even imagine mixing chemotherapy with alcohol. I mean, I can't. I mean, I've never I mean, my God. that, but just, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It, peripherally, it seems... That would I, almost, I almost feel, yeah, I almost feel like, oh, I got cancer after I wasn't drinking for a reason, you know? Mm -hmm. um, right. Yeah. I'm glad yeah. you said so, so help me, because I want to get into your creative um, endeavors, but I want to wrap up this because it's, I feel important, right? Like you did right. drink again, right. right? In May of, of right. 2017. And I, think, and I think the big reason I drank again was because it's this whole labels thing. I didn't want to be an alcoholic. Hmm. An alcoholic was someone who was, was uh, morally bad. Uh, an alcoholic was a person who, you know, lived under a bridge. You know, these were all these things from my childhood and just from, you know, images of what an alcoholic looked like. And even though I had met so many alcoholics and were, uh, you know, absolutely amazing people and, and not anything of what this image is, you know, I still personally had this shame around that word. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to kind of get away from that.
but I kept all the tools and I kept doing what I was doing. But in that, in 2017, I had a lot going on that was anxiety producing. My one son was applying to colleges and trying to go to college and he has Asperger's and I didn't know what was going to happen with that and if he could do it and, you know, what was going to happen. My other son was um, moving out. We were working on getting him some what's called supported living roommates and live, trying living on his own with paid roommates. And there was just a lot going on. And I stopped doing the things that help. I stopped meditating regularly. I stopped going to my yoga classes. I stopped journaling. I stopped doing all the things that helped me. And um, I, I, so I drank again, but not, I didn't have any bit, you know, big, I didn't black out or do any big drinking, but I've started to have like, oh, I can do this. You know, you get in your head, you let yourself say like, oh, I'm fine. I haven't drank in seven years. And even it wasn't that bad. You know, you just kind of let yourself forget about the bad parts. It's like a relationship with abused, you know, partner or something it's like you, as, as you get further out you forget you start to forget the bad parts yeah childbirth and, wasn't that painful right of course that's why <laughs> i have the second one you know we forget things exactly exactly it's your brain's natural tendency i think they call it like right. a discounting mechanism or something your brain right. wants to discount right. the negativity negative parts and you've yeah 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 and i think and so, so Oh, I'm sorry, real quick. I think it's important to, to share this part because I feel like, um, you know, what you're talking about, you had a lot of big transitions. And so for people uh -huh. that are having big transitions and things going on, it's almost like a, just a little bit of a, a yellow warning light, right? Like, right. Okay, right. this is stressful. This is anxiety producing again. I definitely treated my anxiety with alcohol. I didn't know that at the time. I only know that right. now, post-drinking, um, post-quitting drinking. But for you, yeah, it was all like a perfect storm, probably of emotion. So you didn't, you didn't black out. You didn't have big consequences. What helped you make the decision that you're like, nope, I'm jump, I'm nope, this, I'm done. This is not working again. Well, um, my son graduated from high school, and I had a graduation party, and I drank at it, and I didn't. Um, get really drunk or anything, but it was the most I had, you know, before that it was like a glass with dinner when we were out or something and then nothing for weeks. And that night I just drank more than I was comfortable. And it was almost like that, I call it the click. You know, you, I would, you would drink and you, and something clicks. Yeah. And then it's kind of like you're off and people who don't drink uh, in this way, they don't, it's, it's hard to explain, but, um, I, I felt that click that night, you know, I felt, and I stopped myself. Luckily I stopped myself, but it could have been a night where I'd gone to blackout, you know, and the next morning I was miserable and I had remorse that I hadn't had in seven years. And I felt like I was back, you know, all that work for seven years was gone. You know, that's how I felt that morning. I don't feel that way now. Um, and about, I don't know, it must've been like the next day or two days later, I was working from home and I work from home a lot. I never watched TV during the day. I hadn't watched TV since the kids were watching Sesame Street, you know, 18 years earlier, but something made me put the TV on that day. I made myself lunch and I said, oh, maybe I'll put the TV on. And this channel comes on and the woman says, coming up mommies who've given up alcohol or something like that. And I was like, oh, 
okay. So I left it on that channel and it was, um, Aiden, uh, Donnelly mm -hmm. Rowling was one of the guests and, um, and she was talking about why she decided to give up drinking and she sounded, it sounded, it was, it was my experience. I mean, I related to every word. And so I looked her up when the phone, when it was over and I found the edit podcast that Jolene Park and Aiden do. And I binged that and I was like, I have found my people. Mm. Uh, the way that they talked about their drinking was the most relatable drinking stories I had heard to date. It was exactly how I drank and they called themselves gray area drinkers you know, the spectrum of like, either you have no problem or you're an alcoholic, but there's this whole gray spectrum in between. And that's how I felt that, that was like, I was like, yes, that's, that's how I drank. That's me. Um, because I would go to AA meetings and people would say, oh, I know if I have one drink, I'll, I'll die. That's it. And I would sit, listen to them and think, mm, I could have a glass of wine and then not have another glass of wine for a while. Right, right. Just not your yeah. experience. Isn't right. that a miracle that you finally, that you, that you heard it though? Right, I mean, right. But thank I goodness could, but for it, all the stories, the variety I know, exactly, exactly. But it would always end up, you know, yes, I could have one drink that night and maybe another drink a week later, but I'd always end up in bed at three in the morning, sweating mm -hmm. and blacked out. And worrying about what I said and did when I had drank, you know, so it, it always ended up in that place eventually. Um, yeah. And, and the labels can be hard and it can keep us stuck in all these right. different things. And, and, right. and that's what it's like calling it gray, calling it a blackout drinker. I, I went to a meeting where someone called himself a real drunk and I was like, what? are you saying? <laughs> I don't know. Right, and then I was like, right. in my head, I go, oh, he can actually call himself whatever he wants because sure. I'm not the boss. Exactly. And he can and do that just like I. So at that meeting, I introduced myself as a sober, dignified woman for the first time about a month ago. That's awesome. And I've been calling myself that in meetings ever since. And newcomers are coming up and talking to me after the meeting and like, oh, you don't have to call yourself no. I'm like, I go, I do as well call myself that, but I'm going to switch it up. You know, I'm just switching it up right now because the language for me um, I'm much more than that, you know, right, much more than right. that scarlet letter A. So right. yeah, good right. for you. Yeah. And some, some language, you know, I mean, I try not to, I mean, sometimes it's just semantics, but, but, but there is language that feels more um, expansive and mm -hmm. some that feels more restrictive. For sure. And uh, yeah. yeah. Well, for me, I'm just talking for me, mm -hmm. right. There was shame around that around mm -hmm. that label. And so when I was able to find these other people calling it, it was the first I'd ever heard someone calling how I drank something else. There's something for me just clicked. And the shame, I, the shame I read This Naked Mind by Annie Grace. And between This Naked Mind and that edit podcast, it was like the shame was lifted. I was just mm -hmm. like, I'm just, I'm just a person out there dealing with hard stuff trying to, you know, trying to survive. And mm. I misuse alcohol, you right. know, sometimes like, uh, it's like what, you know, we don't have to make it this big thing, Jane, you know, right. Like, it's like, you got move to move on, you know, throw water on it or something. Right. Yeah. 
Well, there's such empowerment right. when we when we remove alcohol from our lives. There's so, I felt that's why I had a hard time with the first step was that I felt super powerful when I quit drinking. And I was like, I'm not going to say I'm powerless. Mm -hmm. But a really dear friend of mine that I used to talk to every single day in early sobriety, we'd text each other. We lived on different coasts. 6 a.m. every morning, I had a text date with her. And I did that in my first year of sobriety. And she just said, when I, and she wasn't part of a 12-step program, but she asked me um, very point blank. She said, I know you think you don't have a problem. I mean, I know you, she didn't say that. She said, I know you don't think you're um, powerless, but are you powerless once you start drinking? And at the stage I was in, at the end of my drinking the last year, yes. If I took right. one drink, I was going to take three drinks for sure. And if I took three mm -hmm. drinks, I probably was going to have more in blackout. So right. it was, I was powerless at that phase of my drinking. Um, I wasn't always powerless and I, I realized that I'm powerless over like, you know, banking institutions, the ocean current <laughs> right, waves right. coming in. I, I don't <laughs> control the universe. So those type of things were helpful to learn. Um, but yeah, yeah, we get, we do. I felt, I felt more empowered with taking, like saying what I want to say, saying the truth, not worrying what right. other people think. Like there's so many right. things that start unfolding after you remove alcohol mm -hmm. and you kind of can get back to yourself, which it sounds like that's what you mm -hmm. did. Yeah. I, the yeah. thing that helped me with the powerless thing um, was my uh, behavior never matched up with my intentions mm -hmm. after mm -hmm. one drink. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I had a lot of intentions, <laughs> but my behavior never matched that. It's interesting because both of you talk about the powerless in that first step. Mine was unmanageable. My life, you know, I was like, my life isn't unmanageable. You know, I'm like working, I'm a mother, I'm an awesome wife, I'm awesome this, I'm running around PTA. You know, I was like one of mm -hmm. those overdoers. Everyone put out the fabulous vibe. Here comes Jane, she can do everything, you know, superwoman. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I was like, my life isn't unmanageable. I haven't lost anything. I'm still married, happily married to the same person, you know, all this stuff. But then when I started really looking at it and working on it, I realized it was my inner life that was unmanageable. Mm. My inner, my, I was crumbling inside. I was a wreck, you know, I yeah. was anxious. I, every night. I would uh, beat myself up because, you know, my son did something that I thought I had fixed, you know, or, you know, or he had a seizure and, and I can't control the seizures, you know, and so I would be upset about that. And so in now what sobriety has done is it's made my outsides match my insides, yeah. you know. And, it's like you, you're um, in alignment again. Right. Not much has changed on the outside for me. Really nothing. Yeah. Um, Isn't that miraculous? Is it is. It's, it's, it's a freaking miracle. <laughs> a lot has changed for me on the outside though. I'm going to have to say. <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying that for the woman who's like, Oh my God, I hope some things change on the outside. <laughs> a lot changed for me on the outside. <laughs> it took some time, but yeah. It's so beautiful because it's the invitation, like this, this thing that we're dealt, right? We think like, oh, why can't I drink like other people? But um, it's this invitation to do this work. It's this invitation to find serenity. It's this invitation to have uh, a life that we're 
like not trying to run away from all the time. You know, right. it's this beautiful exactly. invitation that doesn't look like a beautiful invitation in the beginning. It's disguised because it's pretty, it's pretty messy at the end right. of the drinking, I think. In whatever fashion, everybody has a different bottom. Right. Uh, Sandra and I talk about on this show all the time, like a bottom can be a feeling. It doesn't have right. to be um, that under the bridge moment that maybe we were sold from a movie or something when we were a kid, you know, that right. you'd see people drinking out of a brown paper bag. It doesn't have to be that. And right, especially for right. women in midlife, I think that, um, or women of any age, but just that once you don't like the feeling that alcohol is um, leaving you with, like you have choices, you have options. Right, um, right. Uh, I'm glad you could see that, Jane, too. And, and, to, and to make, you know, labels are just words. And I know they're powerful. Right. I know I, I'm a writer and, I, and I, um, I was a legal secretary that edited words all the time and typed words all the time. Like I know they're important, but they're not more important than me staying sober. So right. sometimes I just like, they're just words. <laughs> yeah. I mean, now I don't, I don't care. I'm, I, I still go to a, um, AA meetings uh, every once in a while, just because I have friends that go and they'll say, oh, let's go have dinner and go. And I'll say, okay, great. I'd love to see everybody. And yeah. sometimes I say I'm an alcoholic. Sometimes a lot of times I'll say, um, I'm grateful to be sober today. Yeah. And I just, I'm so over it. You know, those first seven years, even though I wasn't drinking, there was still a piece of me that was grappling with the label and grappling with all of that. And the last two and a half, I've just been able to totally let that go. And I feel so free. And it's just, it's just been amazing. So actually those labels were your teachers, right? Because it helped mm -hmm. you do the work. And right. That's how, you know, sometimes when things are really irking me, I think like, okay, what do I have to learn here? Clearly, I need to learn something because this person, place, situation, label, whatever it is, it's, it's irking me for a reason. I need to look at it. I don't need to accept everything, but I definitely, it's always like a little indicator, like, what's this about? Right. Yeah. Well, that's what, like the words acceptance and surrender, talking about words and meanings. Mm -hmm. I hated those at first. I was like, hell no, I'm not going to accept that my kids have autism. I'm not going to accept that. That means I'm giving up on them. That acceptance means you're giving up. And that's not true. I mean, it, acceptance frees you from the box, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, sur surrender. I just was reading. Um, I go with my sponsees. I read the, uh, the book, the, A Woman's Way Through the 12 Steps by Dr. Mm -hmm. Stephanie Covington. Yes. Yes, and that, that. and that third step chapter is about surrender, right? And it said, please do not mistake surrender with submission. Mm -hmm. And they talk about that in the book and it was so powerful. So now I, I read that book first with my, with the women that I work with, because the language is a little more modern and it breaks it down in a way. It's all the stories of women written by women, um, for women. And right. I find it, I mean, I do the big book as well, but I just, that's the first one that I do because at first that, you know, to think that we're powerless, it goes into all of these things and explains them in such a beautiful, um, that's where words are important. It explains it in a way that I right. think can, can be um, heard sometimes when you're, when you're early in sobriety, it's hard to hear some of those things, but yeah, surrender is not submission. And, and I love that difference, yeah. that differentiation. Yeah. Well, we should probably mosey on into uh, the, your creative work and how it's played a role in your sobriety and like what you're, um, what you're doing and how, how, because I, when I read some of the stuff that you wrote, am I correct in saying that you didn't think you were very creative before you joined our Unruffled group? Well, I've, yes, I, 
I was one of those kids that really didn't do great in art in elementary school and knew that and so then never did it again. Um, and so what I found from the Unruffled group is that I'm create, you know, I can create whatever art I want and call it art and do that. And, and you know, it doesn't have to be, it can be just for myself. And so that's a piece. In fact, I almost didn't join Unruffled. A friend of mine suggested it, a friend that I had um, met through um, Jolene Park's Gray Area Drinking Group, which is called Nourish. Um, she suggested I join the private, the secret group, Unruffled group. And when I saw it was about for creatives, I was like, oh, that's, I'm not doing like what I didn't think I even belonged in that group so that makes me sad but um so I'm everyone's glad you're yes I'm glad you're telling the story because I know that, that you are not uh, the only person I'm sure that hasn't come on over to our side because they think they aren't creative so yeah yeah, yeah. and I'm like well hell yes I'm creative I, I'm so you know so I've been writing since I was a kid I've always loved to write I write little I wrote little stories when I was a little girl um, I wrote poetry when I was a little girl but you know, the people pleaser and the perfectionist in me didn't share it really with anyone because what if they didn't like it? Um, and so it was something I kept for myself. And just over the years, it was a way for me to get stuff out of my head. You know, if I was really upset about something, I would just write a story. They're always about me. You know, they're about my life, something going on in my life. And, um, and then when I had cancer, I started the Caring Bridge. Um, blog, which Caring Bridge is a nonprofit that started a place on the internet where people who have serious illness can write and then people can log in and read so that you don't have to tell 5,000 people, I went to the doctor today, this is what happened, these were the, you know, you can just yeah. knock it out in one, and so I joined that and the first couple entries are that, I went to the doctor, this and that, but then I just started sitting down every morning and writing and it was for the first time in my life I wrote almost every day. And it became so cathartic for me, and it came, became so much more than the cancer. And um, hundreds of people read it, and I just got such wonderful um, responses and support from people. And it really was um, a very creative outlet for me. Mm. And so now I'm trying to write in a journal at least four times a week, sit down and actually devote time to writing. And um, and, you know, I was thinking of art or creative as more painting or, you know, the making clothes and all that stuff that you guys do. And then I was like, oh, no, writing is totally creative. <laughs> yeah. um, and, um, and then since I joined your group, I've been art journaling and collaging, which is something that I was like, what isn't collaging? You do that in Girl Scouts when you're a kid. And, you know, yes. like, I, I, you know, <laughs> I was like, that's for kids. Like, what am I doing? And so I did it because of you, Tammy, and um, Amanda Grace, and I love it. I love it. And it's become a form of meditation for me. Yeah. Um, and so some days, instead of meditating, I'll get my journal and my paints and my pictures and words I've cut out of magazines, and I'll just sit and, and make a page in my journal. And um, sometimes I share it on social media, and sometimes I don't, but I just absolutely love it and it feels really creative to me and it really feeds something in me and always teaches me something uh 
And that's something I've discovered because I joined your unruffled group. So oh, I'm um, so glad. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Very happy. And yeah. if, any, if anyone's listening, I, I'd like to just punctuate that with saying like, you're creating a new life in sobriety. That is creative. Like you right. can join our group. You, you know, everyone right. is welcome. Right. And, and, and you're going to find some people create meals, you know, start cooking more for their family. Some people start, you know, renovating their homes or, you know, going thrifting and finding a new pillow for your couch. Like whatever it is that you're infusing in your life, um, you know, you're doing it, you're creating a new life in sobriety and you are welcome in that group. And people can just friend request Sandra or myself on Facebook and we'll add you to that group. Just ask to be added. Right. I and, love and, that. Yes. You're and creating also, a new life. Yeah. I, also, I will add that, you know, we're not just sitting around talking about paintbrushes and that kind of thing. Right. Right. Either, so <laughs> I mean, there no. are those conversations occasionally, but that's, that's the, yeah, we're not, we're not, you won't feel left out if you are not into paintbrushes. <laughs> right. Exactly. And that's why at first I thought, oh, and now it's like, it's so, it's about so much more and so yeah. supportive and the women are just amazing. It's, it's a wonderful community, but don't, so don't let that stop you. If you see that creative piece and you're like, oh, cause that's how I was, you know? Yeah. But, um, you're creating a beautiful you, life. I'm so glad that you joined and I'm so glad that you answered our, you know, our call, um, and, and let us get to know you a little bit better. Um, let's see. So we were going to talk a little bit at the end because I know we need to kind of wrap this up, but, um, is there anything else you want to share about how you're thriving in life without alcohol? Because I know that you've done some, um, you're a coach and I wanted to know if you wanted to share a little bit about that. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, I just, it's so fun. Like you, you, you take out that one thing out of your life and you add a gazillion things, you know, you mm -hmm. don't realize it. Uh, that that's going to happen, but it really does. You just you go out there and you just explore and you find all these really cool new things that you didn't know were out there and learn new things about yourself. It's just, it's exciting. It's so hard at first, but it's, it's so wonderful. Um, so I talked about how I turned the TV on and Aiden was there. And then I found the edit podcast. Well, through listening to the edit podcast, I watched Jolene Park's Ted talk. And then that led me to her nourish group. Um, and uh, she brings experts to that group about all different things. And I just loved it so much. And then she offered a coaching a certification for uh, to coach gray area people that identified as gray area drinkers. So I took that certification last winter and I'm, um, I'm a counselor by trade anyway. I have a master's degree in counseling and I've been working with people with intellectual and developmental disabilities for 30 years. So I have that counseling background. So this just kind of added, you know, another dimension to it. And I took that training and became a certified gray area drinker coach. And so I have a coaching and consulting business where part of it is for people who are sober curious or great feel they're gray area drinkers. I'm not a recovery or addictions coach. So I just want to put that out there. Um, if you're actively drinking or you're physically addicted, I, I'm not your person. Um, but I'm, if you've given up alcohol and you're figuring out your life now that you've given it up and you feel like, um, you need some support doing that. I love, love, love helping people who make the decision to walk away from alcohol, who listen to that little voice in their gut mm -hmm. and don't 
and decide that they can walk away, that it's it's not working for them anymore and, and they can walk away. And I, I love working with people who, who are listening to that. That's wonderful. Um, and I also do um, stuff around autism and um, developmental disabilities. I do, I coach people who have autism um, in just trying to live their fullest lives and figure the world out and also parents and families um, trying to find resources and tools to help their children on the autism spectrum. And I love that. And you also, I think you said empty nesters and women between yes, the ages yes. of 45 and 60 who are asking what's next, right? Yes, because I'm 52 and I'm kind of an empty nester. My son, my older son moved out for two years with paid roommates and now we're building him a little 500 square foot adorable house right up above our house and it's almost done. He's going to move in there in, in two weeks and it's going to be amazing because he wants to live alone, but he can't completely live alone. And so this is what we came up with and we're all really excited. That's um, wonderful. I've been yeah. following along. Such a, yeah. such a great solution. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so exciting. It's really, I'm really excited for him. But um, I just find that I find a lot of women um, that when they become empty nesters, they're, they're, they're very, um, it's hard to not still be attached to the mother label and to the kid, you know, what's going on with the kids. And I'm so like, oh my gosh, like, this is the time. Let's go. Like you, now you go and get, get what you want and you do, you know, explore what, what your next phase of your life is going to be. I just feel like I'm just beginning at 52. And if you had told me that at 25, that that's the way I would feel at 52, I would have told you, I would have laughed in your face probably. I thought 52 was old, you know? And I just feel like I'm just getting going, you know? And there's just so much out there. And so I just want to help other women kind of, it's a hard transition and there's a lot going on from 45 to 60, you know? Yeah. And um, in our lives and in our bodies. And so I just want to help women just get out there and, and feel the way I'm feeling, you know? It's like, I'm just beginning. It's like the next act. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Oh, Jane, so much good stuff. Um, we're, but we have to, we have to come up here. Oops. Why? <laughs> <laughs> well, she's excited too. Okay. Um, so we have to wrap it up, but we want to um, hear about three tools that are in your unruffled toolbox that help you either stay sober or um, help with your creativity. And we'll kind of have to do these a little quickly. So why don't you share with our okay. listeners your three items? Okay. Um, my first one is a morning routine. I have to do something in the morning to center myself before the day. And the days that I don't do that at four o'clock, I'm like, whoa, you know, I feel it. And I just say morning routine because for me, it changes depending on the day, on my schedule, on my mood. Um, but that could be a meditation, a little bit of yoga, um, looking up some quotes and then journaling. I use like quotes that, that speak to me as journal prompts. Um, so, you know, it just depends, I, I might journal, do a little collaging and art journaling. So it just depends on the morning. Some mornings I have five minutes, so I'll just meditate for five minutes, but even that five minutes makes a big difference. So, um, and then my second thing is my breath, just going back to my breath. I think that people hear the word meditation and their eyes glaze over. They think they have to be you know, a monk on top of a mountain and sit for hours or something. 
and really, I just go back to my breath throughout the day. If I feel myself getting ramped up, if I feel my anxiety kicking in, I'll just stop so many times, sit in my car in between a meeting or something, and just I just follow my breath for five, 10 breaths, just take deep breaths and imagine my breath going up and going down and going up and going down. And it just completely changes my body chemistry and grounds me. And then I go on to the next thing. And I just think that it's free and it's always with us. We can access our breath at any time. And I just, it's, it helps me every day. It's a good one. Mm -hmm. And then my third one is uh, getting out in nature. I love to hike. I'm lucky I'm right here in nature where I live. So it's easy for me. I'm, I, you know, I'm right in the middle of the mountains. So we get out and hike all the time, but even just um, noticing nature, you know, even if you live in a city and you walk by and you see flowers stopping, I'll see something pretty and I'll stop and I'll take a breath and just take it in and then I'll move on. I'll pull the car over. If I see a pretty sunset, take a picture, take a breath and then get back on the road. And that's something that, um, I would have never done 10 years ago. I was always rushing, always getting to the next thing, always worrying about time. And now I'll pull over and I'll take the picture and I'll take the breath. So um, even if you can't go on an eight mile hike, you can, you know, notice the ants walking across the, the ground as you're walking or something. And, and that really grounds me too. Mm, I love that. So good. Well, Jane, how can people find you if they want to work with you, check out your writing, work with you personally as a coach? How can they find you? Um, well, my uh, website is janecoburn.life. And all my stuff is on there. I took some stuff down last week and rewrote some things and I'm hopefully getting them back up there tonight. Okay. Uh, but all my stuff about my empty nester, my autism consulting, and then the uh, gray area drinking is all up on there. And then on Instagram, I'm Jane, it's easy. I'm all, I'm janecoburn.life everywhere. On Instagram, I'm janecoburn.life. Um, I, I post know. there almost every day. I'm not a huge poster, but I, I post there almost every day. Well, I and love your that, index card series that you posted on Instagram. Oh. And Tammy, that was because of you too. Oh, <laughs> um, I loved because, it. Because of the 100 day project. Yeah. Again, I was like, what? I'm not creative. I can't do the 100 day project. I looked at last year's and people are creating these amazing works of art. And then you brought up about doing the postcards. And I thought, oh, I'm stealing that. I'm going to do that. And so for 100 days, I um, took quotes that I'd written down over the years that I love and put them on an index card and then journal, you know, did like a, uh, what that meant to me, you know, a, an entry about what that quote meant to me. And, and now you have them, now you have them all organized on index cards. Yes. And it, right? it's pretty, I have a pretty little box and the index cards are in there. And I've found that I keep doing it. If something, if a quote really grabs me and I want to journal about it, I'll put it on an index card and I'll do it. So even though the hundred days are past, I'm still doing it from time to time. So that's how I knew. I'm glad you like that, Tammy. I, I totally love it. And that's how I know that me and Sandra were going to be creative soulmates because Sandra has a, an affinity for index cards as well. Yeah, I do. Oh, really? Like, I'm not super organized, <laughs> but I do like, yeah, I do like going back through my old journals and organizing things on index cards so that I could use them for future writing prompts and stuff like that. So. Yeah, that should be right. a tool. We're going to end with that tool. Mm -hmm. Everybody, yes. 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 Hear a quote, if you hear a quote or something that you're reading, or sometimes I hear things on podcasts, 
Um, but yeah, I, I jot them down on, on little index cards to use later. And mainly that was inspired by Sandra, actually, because I saw um, her beautiful color-coded um, index cards uh, when we first started working together. And I loved it. I loved it. Well, Jane, thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. Yeah, it was great. Our listeners are going to love you. And thanks for sharing your story. We really appreciate it. Yes, oh, thank you. Thank you for giving me the space to do it. The Unruffled Podcast was created and produced by Sandra Primo and Tammy Salas. Our show is edited and mixed by Steve Hecht. Original music composed and performed by Caitlin Schumacher. Original artwork created by Tammy with the help of graphic designers Chris Aguirre and Amy Lanier. Thanks for listening.